Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Have you ever looked at your dog and wished that you had whiskers? I have. There's something so elegant and regal about those silver-white bristles. Vibrissae, they're called in Latin. Like antennae that are attuned to the tiniest shifts in wind and sound and vibration. And when my dog notices something, maybe a rabbit running, or a shift in the breeze, or a new scent, or our neighbor's dog Glacier, her best friend and favorite guy to pick on, and those whiskers perk up into a state of alertness. It's like her whole being, all the way through the ends of those delicate hairs, is awake, alive, and feeling. We've all probably also seen the fur on an animal's back go up, the hackles as they're sometimes called. That feeling is contagious, there's a palpable rise in energy, and you can almost feel your own neck hairs stand on end. If you've seen it happen to your own dog, it's something. If you see it happen during an encounter with someone else's dog, it's even more something. And if you see it during a wild animal encounter, that electric bristle, it's a whole other thing entirely. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about hair. Tumbling, cascading, curling, radiating. Hair holds a special place in the imaginative mind. Across the world, visions of the divine involve wild-haired goddesses, bristling white beards, and even silver-haired baboons. Turns out that hair and energy and even consciousness are very closely linked in the human mind. And in some traditions, even the cosmos itself is a little bit hairy. The Bright and Bristling Mind Hair and Imagination and Myth, today on The Emerald. You may have heard of the Diné Code Talkers, Native American soldiers in World War II who confounded the Germans by speaking their native language, a language which had no linguistic parallels to any language that the Germans had ever experienced or imagined. It was in front of several of these Code Talkers, 90-year-old decorated veterans, that our sitting president made a Pocahontas joke not too long ago. Well, many of these code talkers were also scouts and trackers, who traditionally had long hair before they joined the military. There have been interviews with the code talkers, in which several said that after they had their military haircuts, they could no longer access their intuition, their sixth sense, their ability to track and feel. There's even a report that says that when the military tested the performance of those with long hair and those without, the ones with long hair perform better across the board. The understanding is that hair is alive, an extension of the nervous system, 
that hair helps us sense and feel and intuit. In the famous book, Autobiography of a Yogi, Swami Yogananda, who himself sported long, wavy hair, says, quote, The spinal cord is like an upturned tree, with man's hair as its roots, and afferent and efferent nerves as branches. Like an upturned plant, man similarly absorbs through his hair electric currents helpful to the body. There is more hair on the head because that is where the seat of energy is. Some yogis do not cut their hair but keep it long to draw from the ether a great quantity of cosmic rays. End quote. It's true, some yogis do not cut their hair. It was and still is in some parts of the world common for yogic hermits to hold themselves up in a meditation hut and dedicate themselves to one specific practice for a number of years. In the course of this sadhana or practice, the energy would accumulate and build. The hair and nails were considered repositories of this vital prana, and the instruction was to under no circumstances cut them. One Tibetan yogic text instructs the acolyte to refrain from cutting nails and hair and to subsist on nothing while they are practicing but the milk of a red cow. You heard it here first. Yogananda has more to say about hair, this time referencing the biblical story of Samson. The reason, he says, for Samson's having lost his superhuman strength when his hair was shorn by Delilah may well be that he had practiced certain yogic exercises that transform one's hair into sensitive antenna to draw cosmic energy from the ether. Samson the yogi? Not as far-fetched as you might think. The story of Samson is brimming with yogic revelation, and may well be one of those myths that is in fact a mystic or hidden description of the yogic process of accessing the trance state. Consider the episode in which Samson slays a lion on the way to a wedding. The wedding is a common description of the state of spiritual union, the samadhi or yogic joining together of individual and universe, that is sought through practice. Many of the ancient alchemical texts speak of the wedding, or the divine union, as the ultimate goal of alchemic practice. Slaying or riding a lion is also a time-honored way of describing the yogic process of subduing the wild mind, a motif which later can be found in the tale of Heracles and in many Indian myths. Much more on lions later. After the wedding, Samson returns to find that bees have gotten into the dead lion's skull and made a honeycomb which is now oozing with honey. Any myth that so clearly talks about anatomical features is one to pay close attention to. In this case, the skull, which was previously that of an untamed lion, is now a vision of humming symmetry and dripping nectar, exactly how the skull of the yogi is meant to be. Not chaotic, with anxieties and thoughts, but both structured and sweet. Incidentally, The Bees Made Honey in the Lion's Skull is also the name of an album and song by drone metal band Earth, which is well worth listening to. Lots of heavy guitars. Of course, we all know what happens to Samson in the end. 
His power was wrapped up in his hair, and when his hair was cut, there went his power. Monks of many world traditions deliberately cut their hair so as to sever any ego attachment that hair might bring. The sense is not only that hair is a point of pride or attachment because of its beauty, but that hair is actual energetic potency, and to sever it is to, in essence, nullify ourselves before the universe. So we see monks from Tibet to India to Thailand to Burma to the Christian world shave their heads or parts of their heads in submission to a greater power. The potency of hair is recognized everywhere. Romany wise women would warn against leaving bits of hair around the house that could be collected and used against a person by those with ill intent. African spiritual traditions that utilize power objects almost always incorporate hair. Homeopathic medicines can be transmitted to a person via nothing more than a hair sample. Traditionally in India, married women almost universally keep their hair bound when they go out. The binding is the containment of an energy that used to run wild in the free days of youth, but is now tethered to the life of social obligation. Energetically, it's simple. Hair is power, is energy. That energy is for your family, not just to be shared everywhere with anyone. The practice of keeping energy contained is traditionally very yogic. The dreadlocks of yogis and sadhus are an expression of their energetic potency that exists through practice in a bound state. One could say yogically that dreadlocks are the bound poses of the hair, poses in which energy is kept and recirculated rather than squandered. Menstruating women in India stay at home and release their hair so that the energies of their cycle pass through them rather than accumulate. Girls prior to marriage also wear their hair unbound exhibiting that freedom of energy which is later to be bound in marriage. Pre-marriage was also seen among Orthodox traditions as a time of energetic precariousness, when the energies of womanhood have not yet been anchored in partnership, unbound as opposed to bound. In some Indian traditions, this very wildness becomes an object of devotion and adoration, and even a vision of universal energy. The vision of the goddess Kali, with unbound, wild hair, 16 years old in many texts, so implicitly unmarried, wielding an implement that in South India was used by young girls to ward off malevolent spirits during menstruation, flips tradition on its head and becomes an image of sacredness in its very upending of societal norms. The tantric movement reclaimed the sacredness of that which seemingly went against rigid social order, and this included visions of wild and unkempt hair, which is why fierce tantric shaktis in India are shown with their hair streaming down their backs rather than bound. The bigger and freer the hair, the more potent the energy. Sometimes the hair is shown like a magnificent dark cloud billowing behind them, like a cascading river, like a thunderstorm. The great mother goddess's hair, according to the devotional poets, is messy. It is wild. It is black as a storm cloud. The flying streams of hair on her terrible body shine. It is tousled, thick. It reaches down to the ground.
Poets like Ram Prasad Sen rejoice in the disheveled nature of the great goddess and repeatedly reference her hair. She hangs out in cremation grounds, a ring of skulls around her neck, her hair unkempt. But within that wild hair, which is the expressive nature of the forces of the universe itself, of time, birth, life, death, movement, transformation, lives grace and mercy. Her hair is a refuge. It is the home that we are seeking, the way an infant clutches its mother's locks as it nurses. It is reality itself. As Ramprasad says, the mother of the universe captivates all the worlds with her beauty. Her long hair streams as waves of cosmic energy. This reeling poet has fallen forever in love with that glorious black luminosity. Hair as waves of cosmic energy is a poetic image, but is also a direct description, an energetic invocation. The vibrational waves of gravity, of dark matter, of subatomic dynamism, the great goddess's hair. Anyone who has ever put their hand on one of those static orbs at a science museum and seen their hair stand on end knows that hair and energy share a close relationship. This is why the ancient Egyptian hieroglyph depicting power and energy and vibrancy is the bristling tail of a wild dog. And this, of course, is also part of the power of hieroglyphic language. The image itself conveys energy. The walls of the pyramid are to be deciphered, sure, but those images are also to be witnessed and felt. A humming panoply of snakes, rivers, feathers, vertebrae a pulsing aviary of falcons, hawks, owls, cormorants, and, of course, the hermit Ibis, who, according to modern Egyptologist Susan Bryn Morrow, has a radiant crown of hair-like feathers, and whose hieroglyph denotes the energy body, or the body of light of the human being. When colonial British Egyptologists first encountered the 4,000-year-old pyramid texts, they were perplexed by many things, not the least of which were all the references to baboons. Here were supposedly the most ancient religious writings in the world, and they seemed to be nothing but animalistic and sometimes even obscene nonsense. These early scientists could not make head or monkey tail of it, And so, of course, they concluded, like all colonials do when they don't understand the people they've colonized, that the natives were dumb or incapable of understanding true religion. Of course, the reality is the exact opposite. The rational post-enlightenment mind, separated from nature in all ways, could not conceive of a lexicon of the imagination in which simple visual and energetic evocations of nature were the primary medium of communication in which forces of nature were invoked poetically, visionarily, artistically, because, of course, to the British mind at that time, spirituality and nature and art had very little to do with one another. So the British saw a baboon and thought of some dumb animal. Yet what, in direct experience, does the baboon actually, energetically convey? This is Susan Brind Morrow again from her astonishingly beautiful book, The Dawning Moon of the Mind, which is her translation of the pyramid texts. What does the baboon mean in Egypt? This animal is not a coarse or comic figure, 
but rare, revered, remembered from long ago and far away. It is the Hamadrius baboon of the desert grasslands with long, slender, human-like hands and a face of strange, watching intelligence. With its distinctive halo of long, diaphanous silver fur about the head, the Hamadrias is the avatar for mind. If one can start to feel the world in a more visionary way, this vision of diaphanous silver fur becomes a vision for consciousness itself. The god Thoth, as Bryn Morrow goes on to say, who is the radiance of the awakening of intelligence, an awakened one similar to the Buddha, was originally depicted as a baboon with a rising lunar halo. The nimbus that one sees around the heads of bodhisattvas in Buddhist iconography and the halos in Christian churches is the same simple vision of a cloud of luminosity surrounding one whose consciousness has been awakened. For the Egyptians, this vision is best conveyed by a creature who embodies it in somatic form, so that the section of the pyramid texts which the British translated as the king becomes a baboon, could more accurately and less theoriomorphically be invoked as the king awakens his consciousness. To become a baboon is to awaken the mind. This awakened mind radiates with bristling energy, like a baboon's mane in the moonlight, In the arid desert were the Neolithic peoples who eventually became the progenitors of the great civilization of Egypt lived. It must have been a sight. Old, wise baboons in the moonlight, their halos of fur shining off into the horizon. This poetic imprint was carried over thousands of years, right onto the walls of the Great Pyramid. This is how the imaginative consciousness lives, breathes, evolves, shapes history. To feel its presence and its impact, we have to start to use what used to be common sense, imaginative feeling. We have to start to use our whiskers. The San people of the Kalahari Desert in Africa, who used to be known as Bushmen, are a people whose lives center around the experience of trance. Thirty percent of the women and half the men in any San camp are shamans, says David Lewis Williams in his book The Mind in the Cave, meaning they are adept at performing the central ritual of San life, the Ngum Chai, in which Ngum energy the potency and medicine of creation itself, is channeled upwards to the head through marathon-length sessions of drumming and dancing and crying aloud. They want the energy to boil, to reach a point in which it seizes the body of the participant and propels them into a state where they can see the source of sickness or anxiety in their fellow people and breathe it out. San beliefs, of course, were dismissed by colonial-era anthropologists who considered the San too primitive to have any meaningful cosmology. In an increasingly common 180-degree turn, scientists are now studying the San for their advanced knowledge of medicinal plants. As the Ngum energy starts to boil, 
Some can't contain it, and they fall to the ground, cataleptic, rigid, shaking, and trembling. When this happens, those who start to shake and tremble are said to be growing lion hairs on their back. The transformation into a lion or other animal is a key part of San's spirituality. Similar to the king becoming a baboon in ancient Egypt, this suggests that the direct experience of theriomorphism, or transformation into an animal, my word of the week, is not some random hallucination, but the awakening of the consciousness itself in trance, meditation, or ritual. And those things that protrude from the animal body, fur, hair, antlers, are the experience of the consciousness bristling outwards, expanding in radiance and sensitivity. This vision of the one in ecstatic trance as a lion extends across the Indian Ocean to India. The goddess Durga, in the northern Indian traditions, is sung to as Sharanvali, or the lion rider. Shrines to the lion rider dot the countryside at every ridge and every notable tree or river confluence. The hills seem to echo with cries of delight and awe to her. Sharanvali, Sharanvali, all the world is a pilgrim, one folk song goes, whose destination is your door. This vision of Supreme Goddess as Lion Rider is not simply a statement to her might or yogic prowess in subduing the animal mind, though that is certainly present in her iconography. It also signifies her role within the world of spirit mediumship, in which her disciples in the state of trance become ridden by the goddess. They become lions and her their rider. The trance mediums, lions ridden by the goddess, exhibit the signs of spiritual ecstasy. Their voices change to a different pitch, their eyes flutter, they swoon, and of course, the hairs on their bodies stand on end. That bristle of electric energy is indicative of the trance state. It is also recognized in some traditions as the state of the universe itself, which exists as a great singular energy that radiates outwards into multiplicity with a rush of exhilaration and revelation. The same fundamental movement described as the Big Bang, in which singularity rushes outwards into multiplicity faster than the speed of light, like the universe propelling itself into the dreamlike state of creation. In the Yoruban tradition of Ifa, they too have a name for this energetic moment in which oneness became many. They call it the whiteness sprouts hairs. in the Western world are familiar with the image of God as a man with a white beard. This iconography is generally presumed to be simply a patriarchal vision of God. God is a stern old white dude. However, it is a mystic vision as well, a vision which remains far out of reach for most who have been taught about the old bearded man God since they were young, but never presumed there was anything beneath the surface but a vision that was very much alive in the mystic Jewish or Kabbalistic vision of the divine. In the Book of Splendors, 
19th-century French occultist Eliphas Levy's last great treatise on the mysteries of occultism. Levy reveals this mystic vision of hair in the tradition of the Kabbalah, in which the white, bristling hair and beard is the dynamic activity of the mind and word of the divine. Hair represents thoughts, he says, as it radiates outwards from the head, a statement totally synonymous with our Egyptian baboons and their diaphanous halos of silver fur. Hair and consciousness are linked again. Levy goes on. The hair, radiating outward from the skull, is for these priests an image of divine thought. Likewise, as it radiates out from the mouth, it is a symbol of the holy word. It is pure white, white hair whose strands are never tangled. The white hairs of the head spread outwards in perfect order on all sides. Each hair of the beard ends in a point of light, and each point of light becomes a sun. Each strand is a thread of light attached to millions of worlds. From these splendid strands fall drops of light that come to illuminate us. So the hair and the beard are pure white light, vibrational luminosity, emanating from the consciousness of the divine, or the old man's skull. Levy goes on. The hair is the word of God in awareness of itself. The beard is the word made manifest. Let's jump for a moment to the Shiva Shakti traditions of India, which see the divine as a primary consciousness, Shiva, that through self-reflective awareness radiates outwards into the luminous multiplicity of creation, Shakti. This is fundamentally the exact same vision as the old man with the beard, consciousness, radiance. Shiva, Shakti, old man, and his bristling luminous hair. This image of the divine as a massive head is also a way of saying that just like when we see a head of a person from the outside, we don't know what they're thinking. When we gaze upon the universe, all we can really see is the surface. We cannot ultimately know the inner workings, the deepest mysteries of time, space, parallel universes, multiple dimensions. No matter how thinly we slice those atoms looking for finer and finer strings, and is it a coincidence that according to string theory those innermost workings bear a striking resemblance to thin, shining, trembling white hairs? What we know is only the outward appearance. The head of the Supreme Old One is a closed receptacle where infinite wisdom lies at rest like a fine vintage that cannot be disturbed, says Levy. Its intimate thoughts are hidden but its external creation shines forth like a head of hair. Of course, the texts on the holy beard get pretty magnificently out there, and I have to think that modern-day hipsters would love to know that there is a centuries-old secret Kabbalistic cult of beard worship, with such prized lines as The beard is the adornment of adornments, the majesty of majesties. It radiates from the lips like the word which gives light and life to the soul. It's difficult when hearing Levy use the term the supreme beard over and over again, not to picture some type of congregation in Greenpoint or Bushwick, in which hipsters with their carefully cultivated and immaculately groomed beards raise their arms up high in awe and exultation towards some floating, shining, neon beard in space. Stranger things have happened.
Let's simply end with this. When we encounter these myths and stories, these visions of the baboon or the beard or the whiteness that sprouts hairs, these are keys for us, keys that can open a portal, not to an intellectual or mental understanding of consciousness and the universe, but to a direct, felt experience, an experience in which vision, imagination, and direct somatic reckoning are one. This is myth at its finest. Not a story, but a transmission. See if the image of the lion hairs sprouting from the back of the trance initiate stays with you. See if the image of the silver baboon hair in the moonlight stays with you. Even, perhaps, the image of the bristling white radiant hair of the old man, whose hairs spill light outwards. The wizards of the storybooks had to come from somewhere, right? So perhaps we can take a cue from these hairy stories and learn to navigate life from our whiskers a little more, and meet this world with a little bit more bright bristle. This episode contains quotes from and references to several books. Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Grace and Mercy in Her Wild Hair by Ram Prasad Sen, translated by Leonard Nathan. Singing to the Goddess by Rachel McDermott, who will be on an upcoming episode of this podcast. Mother of the Universe by Lex Hickson. The Dawning Moon of the Mind by Susan Brind Morrow. The Mind in the Cave by David Lewis Williams, and The Book of Splendors by Eliphas Levy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.